Hey Irish fans, Alex Painter here to remind you that this episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by WCScreens.com. If you have needs with screen printing, embroidery, or more, please check out our pals at WCScreens.com. They have nationwide shipping and wholesale pricing. Not only are they big supporters of this podcast, but like you, they are also diehard fans of the Fighting Irish. WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Elmer Layden will be forever etched in Notre Dame and college football lore as one quarter of the legendary Four Horsemen backfield, which catapulted to fame during the 1924 season. However, did you know that among Notre Dame head coaches of at least five seasons, Elmer has the fifth highest winning percentage in school history? Seriously, here's the list. Rockney, Harper, Leahy, Parsegian, and Layden. It's possible that many folks are otherwise unaware that a four horseman roamed the sidelines as head coach for Notre Dame, but Layden did that and so much more. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Outlined against a blue-gray October sky, the Four Horsemen rode again. In dramatic lore, they are known as famine, pestilence, destruction, and death. These are only aliases. Their real names are Stoldrer, Miller, Crowley, and Layden. They form the crest of the South Bend Cyclone, before which another Fighting Army football team was swept over the precipice at the Polo Grounds yesterday afternoon as 55,000 spectators peered down on the bewildering panorama spread on the green plain below. Hello Irish fans, my name is Alex Painter and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. This is the 81st episode of the show and I have quite an offering for you today. And yes, I had to read Grantland Rice's immortal words about the 1924 Notre Dame backfield as something of a stage setter for today's subject. But thank you so much for joining me here today and as always, I am absolutely thrilled to be here with you talking about fighting Irish football. But that wouldn't be possible without the generous support of the show's sponsors, yes indeed, the Consensus All-Americans. They are those very special individuals who contribute to the show monetarily. These folks have either contributed significantly in the past or are currently donating to the show, and they include Michael Fyan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana, and Mike Johnson of Oak Park, Illinois. Thank you all. And if you'd like to join the ranks of the Consensus All-Americans yourself, please feel free to visit the virtual collection baskets at paypal.me slash onwardtovictory or patreon.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast. If you are not in a position to give, hey, no worries. 
please still like, subscribe, leave a review, or tell your friends and family about the show as well. Every little bit helps. Hey, we're going right into it today though, folks. The task at hand, which is Elmer Layden. I'm really excited about this one because I think this is one of those classic Onward to Victory episodes where we are taking a subject who might be famous even, but we're shining new light on him, new perspective on him for the modern fan. And again, Elmer Layden, in some respects, it doesn't get more noteworthy. He was one of the infamous Four Horsemen, but we can still learn quite a bit about him. And friend of the show and Notre Dame historian Andy Nichol calls him the underappreciated Four Horsemen in his book, Men, Moments, and Myths. So if you're looking at that ever-so-famous photograph of the ballplayers perched atop the horses, and if you haven't, just feel free to go over to Google and put Notre Dame Four Horsemen. You'll find it. Elmer is second from the left. And you know, as we are quickly approaching the 100th anniversary of the Four Horsemen backfield next season in 2024, I have had a couple brainstorming sessions with myself on how we should commemorate the significance of these men and their contributions to Notre Dame football. I know I'll do something next year, but this episode about Elmer had to happen at some point. Though all the horsemen would see some success, some more than others, in football after graduating from Notre Dame, you could easily make an argument that Elmer Layden had the most impact on the university and the game itself. And no knock on the other three, but you could easily say that they are a distant second to Mr. Elmer Layden. And I am also obligated to share that this episode probably wouldn't have happened, at least not at this moment, if not for a recent visit to Augie's locker room in South Bend. Augie and I are good pals, and aside from an affinity for Notre Dame, we both also collect books. And while I was there with my kids recently, Augie pointed to a shelf of books and asked me to take one home. And of course I thanked him, and, but I ultimately grabbed the book called It Was a Different Game, The Elmer Layden Story a nostalgic picture of a bygone era by one of the four horsemen of Notre Dame. (laughs) That's a long title, Uh, but it's a great little read. In fact, I was glued to it, and I read it that same day. But what I thought was interesting was how the game of football has changed. When Elmer teamed up with Ed Snyder to write this book, the year was 1969, and Elmer was mostly contemplating the sport as he played it and as he coached it in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And sometimes you could hear the tone in the writing. The game at that time felt almost unrecognizable to Elmer, which I thought was really interesting because it's true. It makes you think about the history of football and just how much that game has changed. Like, for instance, if you were to watch a baseball game today in 2023, and if you were to jump in the mythical time machine and go back and watch a game in 1923 or even 1913, the game would look relatively the same, though the tactics might be different. The game would look relatively the same itself. However, if you were to go back and watch a football game in 1923 and in 1913, it's not looking a whole lot like the game today from a multitude of angles. And so I thought that was really interesting because how quickly the game of football has truly changed. And thinking about Elmer talking about the game in 1969 and looking back at the 20s, 30s, and 40s, that would almost be like somebody today contemplating the game from the 
80s and 90s. And I just thought that was really interesting. But regardless, looking at the whole breadth of impact and the whole career of Elmer Layden, he's just a guy who checks a lot of boxes. And he reminds me of a Chet Grant type. Though, of course, Grant wasn't a member of the most famous backfield of all time. So I digress. The man, Elmer Layden, who would later achieve college football immortality, was born on May 4th, 1903 in Davenport, Iowa. Now, for you jazz fans, and I know we have some jazz fans, Davenport was also the hometown of legendary jazz cornetist and pianist Bix Beiderbecke. Bix is easily one of the most influential figures in early jazz, and though Bix died at the very young age of 28, he is one of those figures whose influence has just really continued and persisted to the day. Now, I bring up Bix because I do enjoy his music, of course, but wouldn't you know it, Bix and Elmer were born in the same city, the same year, and Elmer was born just six days before Bix. That's quite serendipitous, if you ask me. But Elmer's parents were Tom and Rosemary Layden. Tom and Rosemary were Catholic, and they raised their children as such. So Elmer and his siblings attended nearby Sacred Heart for grammar school and eventually got to Davenport High School. Elmer competed in all three sports that were offered by the school at that time, which were football, of course, basketball, and track. By Elmer's senior season in 1920, he was named an All-State quarterback. Though, despite a distinguished prep career, by the time he graduated, he had exactly one offer to play sports in college. And that was from... Well, you guessed it, the University of Notre Dame in South Bend to go play for the legendary Canute Rockne. Though at this time, Rockne wasn't necessarily legendary yet. That was going to come. But that scholarship that Layden received was actually offered to him by Walter Hallis, a Notre Dame man and the older brother of the ever-famous George Hallis, mind you. Who's George Hallis? Well, He's the founder of the Chicago Bears, Papa Bear Hallis, if you will. Um, and since this was the only compelling offer he had to go to college and play sports, the Iowa boy, Elmer, headed to South Bend in 1921. I use Iowa boy very intentionally here. Though Elmer would see success that most could only dream of at Notre Dame, he soon developed a homesickness that wouldn't quit for the better part of half of his time as a student at Notre Dame. According to Layden, it started almost immediately. Perhaps that was because his initial residence hall experience wasn't great. Speaking candidly, it kind of sucked. Uh, his two roommates thought it would be clever if they stacked their bunk bed on top of the cot uh, to save room in their dorm. Perhaps you were one of those people who in your college dorm room you had a triple bunk bed, but Elmer said he couldn't sleep a wink because he was at the very top bunk and he said he was approximately 12 feet in the air and he feared he'd fall off. <laughs> Who could blame him? That's a long fall. So he ended up sleeping on the floor of his cousin, a fellow student who was from Fort Wayne, Indiana's dorm room. Slept on the floor. Just not a good experience here for our hero in the early goings. 
So after his first year was finally over, and this is of course during a time where freshmen were not allowed to play varsity football, he was prepared to tell Coach Rockney that he was heading for home and he wasn't coming back. To which Rock replied, quote, Son, we've never lost a freshman from our team yet, end quote. And though Elmer returned to Notre Dame his sophomore season in 1922, he found that riding the pine or sitting the bench was not really to his liking either. I mean, really, he was just a homesick guy. And when the thing you're there for isn't really panning out, well, he did what most teenagers would do. He made contact with and he was secretly preparing to transfer to the University of Wisconsin. And not for nothing, he also had a girlfriend there, so at least there was that, he reasoned, and maybe he'd get more playing time for the Badgers. In fact, according to Elmer himself, he approached Coach Rockney once again, this time to share with him that he was planning to transfer. To which Rock reputedly said, All right, Layden, I'll start you the next game. <laughs> that was easy, I guess. But as it were, the next game was on November 11th. Again, this is 1922 against Army. It was perhaps the biggest game on the schedule for Notre Dame. And their rivalry with Army was one of the biggest rivalries in the country. And ironically would be Layden's ticket to fame just two years later. Though the Irish and the Black Knights, who were then known as the Cadets, played to a 0-0 tie, Layden impressed enough at left halfback to find more playing time. When first-string fullback Paul Kastner unfortunately broke his leg, Layden stepped in and proved to be an impact player for the 8-1-1 1922 Notre Dame squad. According to Layden's book, when Rock asked him to try out for fullback to replace Kastner, Layden, being kind of a humble dude, offered to Rock that there were two other fullbacks that weighed more than he did. At the time, Elmer only weighed 162 pounds, and in the backfield, your fullback was typically kind of your bigger, brawnier guy. And after all, one of Elmer's nicknames was literally the Thin Man. But Rock told him, Never mind that. I need a small fullback because our line opens up small holes. End quote. <laughs> That's pretty good. But the football review that season said that, quote, Elmer Layden was the beautifully consistent jewel. In early season, he played second-string halfback to Jimmy Crowley and delivered so steadily that Coach Rockney used him at left half throughout most of the Army game, where Elmer responded with his best performance of the year. When Paul Kastner was injured, Layden went to fullback, where his triple threat, his ability to punch a line, and his unusual speed promised to aid him in developing into a successor of Gipp, Mohart, and Kastner. End quote. In 1923, Rockney's men continued to impress, compiling a 9-1 overall record. And you really saw that four-horsemen backfield, albeit without the nickname yet, really starting to hit their stride. Elmer was fullback, Harry Stolger was at quarterback, and Jimmy Crowley and Notre Dame legacy Don Miller were at halfback. During the 1924 season, interestingly, none of the backfield were named captain, but rather that went to fellow senior Adam Walsh. And that's no knock on Walsh. He was a magnificent center. 
and he was the one who allegedly coined the phrase and the nickname of the Seven Mules, who blocked for the Four Horsemen. In retrospect, that 1924 team was absolutely loaded. And even though Rock was often cautiously optimistic about his team's talent and chances, he may have known that he had a real shot at a national title that season. So the Irish go out, I guess not known as the Irish at that time, but they whomped Lombard and Wabash to begin the season. And Notre Dame had Army next on the schedule for October 18, 1924. And the game was held at Polo Grounds since they had clearly outgrown the plane at West Point. So, again, away game for Notre Dame and 55,000 people crammed in to watch the action. In the first quarter, quarterback Harry Stoldrer found his target, Elmer, for a forward pass and a touchdown and a 6-0 Notre Dame lead. And Layden even kicked the extra point to extend the lead to 7-0. Don Miller punched a second-half touchdown in to give Notre Dame a 13-0 lead, and they would ultimately win the game 13-7. But as you may be familiar, one of the 55,000 in attendance that day was the renowned sports writer, Grantland Rice, who was sitting in the press box. It was Rice speaking with the new Notre Dame student press assistant named George Strickler. And Strickler was sharing with Rice that he had just seen this awesome movie. It was called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And as Strickler was offloading the details to Rice, Rice's imagination just ran kind of wild. And thus he penned the famous Four Horsemen article, which ran on the front of the New York Herald Tribune, which then led to it being picked up by many newspapers around the country. The four men, including Elmer Layden, became overnight sensations. And there was no way they could have known it then. In fact, at least two of the horsemen said they assumed that people would forget about the nicknames, but their lives would never be the same. So when the team returned to the practice field a couple days later, fresh off a signature victory against Army, the aforementioned Strickland had borrowed four horses from the South Bend Ice and Coal Company cashing in on Rice's sensationalist headline and prose, the men were perched on the horses and the ever-so-famous photograph was snapped. I can't remember just which horseman it was, or maybe there was a couple of them. That was actually their first time sitting on top of the horse. Rice's words, paired with the photo itself, though, assured that these guys would never be forgotten. The 1924 Notre Dame squad went a perfect 10-0 on the season, and they capped the campaign by winning the team's first ever appearance at the Rose Bowl, a game they wouldn't participate in again until 2021, 97 years. Layden was named a consensus All-American, and the Irish were crowned national champions. This was probably among the first truly legendary teams. But after graduating, I should say, other than Gipp's team in 1920, that was a pretty good team too, but after graduating in 1925, Layden had a couple brief stints in professional football actually. Now if you can imagine, college football, well it had the ability to pack 55,000 people into polo grounds. 
professional football, not so much. A lot of the games were played at kind of municipal parks or some cow pastures. But there was an episode, though, where the Hartford Blues out of Hartford, Connecticut, signed all the four horsemen for a single game for a princely sum of $5,000. That's big money for professional football. Elmer scored the Blues' only touchdown in the 13-6 loss to the Cleveland Bulldogs. But again, as Layden had heard from Rockne countless times over the years, if you wanted to make money in football, it wasn't playing professionally that would get you there, but rather coaching. So Elmer took his first gig coaching during the 1925 and 1926 seasons at Columbia College in Dubuque, Iowa. This is an institution today known as Loris College. So 1925 and 1926, Elmer is still in his, very much in his early 20s. And while he was coaching at Columbia College, he was also getting a graduate degree in law and studying to pass the bar. Not too shabby for our guy, but he also led the Dewhawks, as they were called, to an 8-5-2 record during those two seasons. And I believe it was in the book that sometimes he'd go out for football practice and there'd only be a handful of guys there because a lot of the guys on the football team were studying to become priests and they had other obligations that they had to tend to before football practice. So Elmer probably had a little bit of a hard time. He played under Coach Rockney, which was very much, well, it hinged on discipline. So, but he made the best of what he had. Again, an 8-5-2 and two record. But next, he continued his ascent through the college coaching ranks by landing the top job at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It is of note that both of Layden's stops at this time now were at Catholic universities. But by this time, Elmer was married to his wife, Edith, and as he said, there was a little Layden on the way, so he needed to find a more lucrative gig, so he moved on from Iowa and Columbia College. And it helped that the Duquesne job paid him $6,500 per year to be both the coach and the athletic director. Now, this Duquesne job is what taught him to both, of course, coach on a little bit more of a scale to college football. Not to say Columbia College wasn't a college, but it, there was, it was just a little different. But it was his gig as the athletic director that really helped his organizational skills. But he did. He slowly built up that Duke's football with what he called Rocknean discipline. In 1927, he noted that his first year, he only had about 35 to 40 candidates come out for the football team. However, by the next season, he had over 200 men come out for the football team. And in seven seasons, he took the Dukes to a 48-16-6 record. This was a success unheard of at Duquesne, and he won two conference championships and a bowl game victory, which was a blowout win over Miami at the Festival of Palms Bowl in early 1934. But now, chugging along with a note about remembrance. Between the coaching tenures of Knut Rockney and Frank Leahy, how many seasons would you guess there were? Throw out a number. Well, there were actually 10 seasons between these guys, a full decade. This fact may come as a surprise to many. I know in Notre Dame history, national championships are indeed the currency. 
but I think that has enabled us at times to gloss over some really good teams, players, and coaches. I think the way history is presented to us can sometimes trick us into who is handing who the baton, so to speak. And, you know, to this effect, I did speak to my younger brother, Colton, who is a Notre Dame historian in training, if there ever was one. And I asked him the very same question. How many years had passed, do you think, between the Rockney and Leahy eras? And he answered the way I think many folks would, especially if they are aware of the statues outside Notre Dame Stadium. That Rockney surely led directly and consecutively to Leahy. Again, 10 seasons in between these guys. History remembers the quote-unquote winners. And in the case of Notre Dame, it's those who won a national championship. Those with a statue outside the stadium sculpted by Jerry McKenna. Though Elmer Layden won a national championship as a player, he never won one as a coach. Spoiler alert. But I guess if you're paying attention to the statues outside of Notre Dame Stadium, you probably knew that already. But however, this fact does tend to obscure or at least veil his legacy as a Notre Dame ball coach. But again, of those 10 years between Rock and Leahy, seven were commandeered by, yes, Elmer Layden. And wouldn't you know it, he did a damn fine job as coach at Notre Dame. In fact, we keep talking about these statues outside the stadium. Two of those guys out with statues outside the stadium, Lou Holtz and Dan Devine, well, Elmer actually had a better winning percentage as coach than them. And as I mentioned in the show lead, only Knut Rockney, Jess Harper, Era Parsegian, and Frank Leahy had a better winning percentage than Elmer. That's across the entirety of Notre Dame football history. Even as a vaunted four horseman, Layden is largely forgotten as head coach at Notre Dame. Bear with me here, but that's why remembrance can be a fickle thing at best and an absolutely unforgiving thing at worst. And this, friends, is why this isn't a throwaway Four Horsemen-themed episode. Somehow, in nearly four years of doing this, I have somehow inadvertently evaded a Four Horsemen episode, but Elmer Layden deserves his own episode. <laughs> but damn, Alex, chill out. Why was Elmer hired to be head coach at Notre Dame? He came back to Notre Dame in 1934 after a largely failure of a tenure from Hartley Hunk Anderson as head coach from 1931 through 1933. Hunk Anderson was, of course, one of George Gibbs' best pals and a Notre Dame man through and through, though that didn't necessarily help him as much as the Irish went 16-9-2 in the three seasons after Rock's death. So while Elmer Layden wasn't at the top, of anyone's list, he was at least on everyone's list that university president John Francis O'Hara had solicited. But a couple things did stand out. He was, of course, Catholic, and he had coached at multiple Catholic institutions, and so he understood the culture. Now, Layden had a very smooth public demeanor. In fact, of the four horsemen, you could make the argument that he was kind of the most debonair and probably easily the best looking. No offense to the other three. And Elmer also had a spotless private life. He was calm, he was gentle, and he was just well-spoken. And these things mattered, of course, but as well as his general intelligence. He was widely regarded as a strategist, a master organizer, and he was a lawyer, after all, 
Were there any other Notre Dame coaches who were lawyers? <laughs> I'm trying to remember right off the top here, but I'll say this. None since Elmer Layden were. Now, hopefully I'm right there. So he was named Notre Dame's new head football coach in 1934. And he spent the next seven seasons through 1940 at the helm of the program. And Layden was a good soldier, and I mean it. Like I said, he was calm and he was gentle. He was diplomatic. And it was around this time that the university officials began cracking down on athletic scholarships with their effort to make Notre Dame an academic powerhouse in addition to an athletic one. Kind of like the reputation that we know and enjoy out of Notre Dame today. And Layden played nice in the sandbox and he complied. Again, he was nothing if not a cordial man. In fact, that would actually get him in trouble later on in his professional career. He was perhaps too nice. He followed all the rules of the administration to a T. Ostensibly, rules put in place that would make his job much harder to recruit and retain student-athletes. Again, minimizing scholarships, that's probably not how you grow your football program. But he would do anything to get guys, the guys he wanted, at Notre Dame. Oh, another rule is, is he wasn't allowed to go out and recruit. If he wanted a recruit to come to Notre Dame and play football at Notre Dame, they had to come to campus. He was not allowed to make home visits. That put him so far behind the eight ball. But again, he would do about anything to get players to Notre Dame. Such as, well, even if they were restricting his amount of scholarships, he found ways, other ways, to get money to his athletes. So, though he was very, and I'll use the word again, diplomatic, he doesn't mince words. Uh, in a 1939 article in the school newspaper, it said, Hey, you need a grave dug, ice hall, or are you constructing a building? Call Coach Layton. He'll supply you with some football players for the job. What's more to help, I don't want to say circumvent the rule, but again, play nice in the sandbox, Layton found square jobs for his incoming and returning players all over the Midwest on highway crews. This is all according to Murray Sperber, by the way, in his history of Notre Dame called Shakedown the Thunder. But imagine, as you're driving around interstates 65, 69, 70, 74, 80, or even one of the state highways, it's very possible that those were platted by Notre Dame football players during the Elmer Layden era. And again, he also served as a goodwill ambassador with Michigan, so we've covered this in previous episodes, but after the 1909 game, uh, Michigan refused to play Notre Dame for a, a number of reasons. Chiefly, there was some eligibility questions of a couple of their players, Ralph Dimmick and George Philbrook. I got an episode on that. It's awesome. Go back and check it out. So what does Notre Dame do? They desperately wanted to still join the Big Ten Conference at some point. They, they thought that that was their path to success and sustainability as a football program, but they weren't going to be able to join the conference if one of the most powerful teams in said conference was still actively boycotting them. So the university dispatched Layden to go up and talk to Fielding Yost, who was actually the guy who was initially miffed at Notre Dame and called for the boycott all those decades earlier. He smoothed it over, and by the early 40s, Notre Dame and Michigan were back playing each other. That is a credit to his legacy. But in seven years as head coach of the Irish, Elmer's teams went 47-13-3. Again, that winning percentage ranks him among the best in Notre Dame history. And among those without a national championship, he is the best. 
I don't necessarily count Jess Harper in that discussion since that was much earlier in college football history and national champions weren't crowned quite the same way. But he is the best. Or if you want to count Harper in there, okay, he's one of the two best. And perhaps his most notable victory was a 1935 defeat of Ohio State in Columbus at an early game of the century or a one-versus-two matchup. That game in and of itself probably deserves its own episode, and that might come at some point. But Elmer would leave Notre Dame after the 1940 season, and he became the first modern commissioner of the National Football League. Yes, so the very same Elmer Layden, four horsemen, unheralded head coach at Notre Dame, was also the first commissioner of the modern NFL. Wild, right? Well, buckle in. He was commissioned during World War II, and he was the first to order the Star Spangled Banner play before games. Now, at first, this was a sign of patriotism during the war, but it was his decision to keep the anthem after the conflict is over. Was over, I should say. So whenever you hear the anthem before any football game, you can thank Elmer Layden. And uh, ultimately, he was forced out of commissioner in 1946. The early owners of the NFL viewed Elmer as perhaps, I'm going to use the word again, overly diplomatic. The point, he wasn't hardline enough, but he did spend six very pivotal years in that role and guided the league through the global conflict of World War II. Just five years later, when the College Football Hall of Fame was established in 1951, Elmer was in the inaugural class, the first class. And he was joined in that initial class by none other than George Gipp and Knut Rockney. Think about that one for a moment. Notre Dame today has 48 players enshrined in that Hall of Fame. And those were your first three right there. Gipp, Rockney, and Layden. Elmer died in Chicagoland in 1973 at age 70. Rest in peace always to the thin man, the four horsemen, Elmer Layden. And I'll be right back with a quick show wrap. you enjoyed that one in some respects that was kind of a quintessential onward to victory episode so we learned a little bit more about Elmer Layden and kind of some more about those tweening years if you will between Rockney and Leahy which can kind of again get a little misplaced if you're not too terribly careful sometimes so I hope you did enjoy that please check in with the podcast soon I have a anniversary special that I'm queuing up and I'm going to be really excited to share news about here, but that'll be this month here in June. So keep an eye out. I'd like to thank you once again for tuning into this latest episode, number 81, as I guess now we can kind of think of it as the March to 100 draws nearer and nearer. So I am going to let you run for now. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. Yeah.